In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Christos Anisti. Christ is risen. Amen. Um, I'm happy to be in your midst, and it's, uh, as I always say when I'm here, it's very nostalgic just to stand at the altar that I first took communion from and uh, to pass by the baptism that I was baptized in and to see all your faces I probably know. Maybe I'm decreasing in the percentage of people that I know when I come now, but at least 50% of you, I know your faces either as yani, as they are now or as little children. Um, so I'm happy to be with you. Um, we'll read from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2, from verses 13 to 15. Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2, from verses 13 to 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And glory be to God forever. Amen. This passage is the main passage that we read on the feast that we celebrated earlier this week on Tuesday, the feast of our Lord's entry into Egypt. And two things that should come to our attention during the time of resurrection whenever we're reading the Bible is the two verses in it that say, Arise. The angel could have just said, Take your child and his mother flee to Egypt. But he said, arise, take your, your young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And then he said, when he arose, St. Matthew tells us when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So resurrection is all throughout the scriptures. There's no, read for, no need for him to use the word arise. But whenever we hear the word arise or read the word arise in scriptures, many times it's unnecessary. It's understood. Like our Lord said, to the paralytic man, arise, take up your bed and walk. Well, obviously, I can't take up my bed and walk unless I arise. But it's a reminder for us of resurrection. Um, when we think about this feast, why do we celebrate this feast? Why do we celebrate the feast of our Lord's entry into Egypt? You're not too large of a group, so I think I can ask questions. Why do we celebrate our Lord entering into Egypt? Yes? So certainly the main reason that we celebrated in our church, and we can tell because it's not celebrated in the other apostolic churches, which is one of the ways that we understand how important things and how ancient things are for us. So because it's not celebrated in the other apostolic churches, so we know that it's significant to us because the mother church is in Egypt. Um, the, the rites that we celebrate, even if we're praying everything in English, they are Coptic rites. They are the rites of the Church of Alexandria. But when we think about, when we read the same readings, the readings of the Feast of the Entry of Our Lord into Egypt, can anyone tell me when else these readings are read? The, the talk about our Lord entering into Egypt. What, when would we read these? Or what, what's the other main reason that we would focus on this passage? Our Lord entering into Egypt. 
Yes. Certainly. So in that case, according to what you're saying, what does Egypt represent? Huh? Someone said sin. Okay, a place of sin. Or closer to what Yani this young woman was saying. That it represents a place where the people live who are in animosity with God, who are who are enmity with God. And God, when He comes, He comes in His incarnation for the salvation of every single soul. All of us gathered here, all of us that are not gathered here, including all those that were on the road with you on your way here when you came today. And including everyone that you go to school with or that you work with, um, and everyone that you know and do not know that has ever lived. God came for their salvation. And so Egypt represents the salvation of the world, the preaching to the salvation of the world. And that's why if we look in the rites of the church, the first Sunday of the month of Tuba, we read the exact same readings that we read on the feast of the entry of our Lord into Egypt. And so the church wants to teach us through these readings, the theme or why we read those readings at that time, is because we're saying when he came in the flesh, he came for all people. He came, yes, to the place where the people of Egypt, the people of Israel were enslaved, but also Egypt was a symbol of the people that were pagans, that were worshipping other gods, that were willing to enslave the people of God for 400 years. So if we look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, we'll see the first mention of Egypt in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, it's the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, 12 is when we begin the story of Abraham. And we read, there was a famine in the land Twelve ten. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. So there's a famine that's there, and that's what brings Abram, who will later become Abraham, to go down into Egypt. The man that all tribes and all people will claim heritage to afterwards. The Jews, the Christians, and even the Muslims. There's another famine that comes 400 years later. And when that comes, that's when Joseph and all the people of Israel end up going down to Egypt. And that's when they become enslaved, and then they're taken out by Moses in the Red Sea. And then we hear the story of Exodus, or the book of Exodus, in which Hosea prophesied and said, Out of Egypt I called my son. Yes, it refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why St. Matthew in the Gospel that we just read in Matthew chapter 2, he says, Out of Egypt I call my son. So St. Matthew is saying, the prophecy of Hosea is referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. But originally at that time, the prophecy was referring to the people of Israel being called out of Egypt, being taken out of Egypt. So before the people were taken out of Egypt, there were 10 plagues that God did with the people of Israel to glorify the people of Israel and to show the people of Egypt 
who the true God is. Uh, Exodus chapter 7 verse 3. Exodus chapter 7 verse 3. We all know the crossing of the Red Sea. We think that yani, primarily it's a story of good and evil, like anything else. But there's more to the story of the Exodus. Why would God need to do all of these plagues? He could miraculously take them out from the very first thing. He could kill the firstborn from the very first time and be done. But Exodus chapter 7 verse 3, the Lord tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Why? Why are you going to allow your grace? Pharaoh's rejecting your grace. Why are you going to allow your grace? And I remember learning this in the, in the college room downstairs. May God keep him, Abuna, uh, Antonio Salib. He was teaching us a, a Bible study on Genesis and he was the first person to expose me to the idea that Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God is not Pharaoh being willfully by God, he's just commanding that his heart be hardened. But rather, God is allowing Pharaoh to harden his own heart. That Pharaoh does not want to receive the grace of God, he does not want to receive the message of God, and so God is allowing him to do as he wishes. That's what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why does he do this? Why the ten plagues? Two verses later, Exodus 7, 5, the Lord explains and he says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So the key is that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That when they see the way that God deals with his people, they will know that the ones that the Israelites worship are the ones that worship the true God. And it's the same in the, Old Test in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. So John chapter 17 verse 3, they call John chapter 17 the Holy of Holies of the Scriptures. The holies of holies because our Lord Jesus Christ is praying to the Father in John chapter 17. And it's one of the two times that our Lord Jesus Christ prays for us, us here now. So John chapter 17 verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, same thing he said in the Old Testament, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the purpose of God is for us to know him, to abide in a relationship with him, to know somebody is not just to know them mentally. Our job when we're doing Bible studies and we're seeking out God is not to just understand mentally who God is. If you had a relationship with someone and all you did was be able to describe every single thing about what that person does, that doesn't necessarily mean you have a relationship with them. John chapter 20 verse 31. Our Lord again is saying uh, through St. John, the writer of the, of the Gospel of St. John, John chapter 20, verse 31. He says why the gospel is writ written. Why what we read in the gospel is written there. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason that the gospel is written. That we may have life with him. That we have a relationship with God. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, we're just going over some scripture verses to put the scriptural foundation for what we're going to talk about. 1 Timothy 2.4, St. Paul is saying to St. Timothy, who was a young bishop, and he's teaching him, he's telling him, this is, this is what God desires. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we say in the St. Gregory Liturgy, you have given me the learning of your knowledge. You have given me the learning of your knowledge. In the Old Testament, again, Psalm 66 Psalm 66, uh, 67 in, in the Coptic reader. 
We're saying, I'll just, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Whenever we're reading all nations in the Old Testament, it's very important because it's, it's signifying not just the people of Israel, but all the people in the world, which the majority of them are pagans and Gentiles. Let, all the, let the people, sorry, praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations, all of them, be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. The first psalm that we say, anybody know what the first thing that we say after the Agbeya for Vespers praises? Vespers praises. So the beginning of the church day is Vespers praises. We pray the Agbeya prayers, the ninth, eleventh, and twelfth hours. But then we start Vespers praises. What's the first thing we say in Vespers praises? Huh? Psalm what? Psalm 116. Nieth nostiro. Can we, Psalm 116? Or Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The first thing that we're saying to God when we're beginning our church day on the day of the Lord, which is Sunday, is praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. So we are coming to church, and the church is teaching us, by beginning with this hymn, that we are coming to church not just for our salvation, but for the salvation of the world, for all the Gentiles. That all the Gentiles would be able to praise God. That all the nations would be able to praise God. When else do we say, or we hear, when else do we hear this psalm being said? Where? Where in the liturgy? I don't know who's speaking. Ah, Joe. Okay, not communion. It's towards the very beginning, yes. In the offering of the Lamb. When? Not a little of yes. The deacon responds in the altar. So Abuna goes into the altar, and yeah, the good women should know all the deacon responses as well. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Annie, forgive me for putting you on the spot, but I remember Maryam used to teach a Coptic. <laughs> so like, they, yeah, yes, the women need to know all these things as well. And if the men are not deacons, they need to know as well. Uh, because this is our heritage. This is, what we, this is what the church, how the church teaches us. So as a good mother, the church gives us all of these things, and we thank God that now there's Coptic Reader and all these different apps, and, and you can have everything at your fingertips. So we should take the liturgy book and just read through it, the silent prayers and everything, to know what's there, because it will teach us about our life with God. There's a lot of depth to it. So the priest, after he does, he just says glory and honor. He goes around, and they say, the people say, this is the day the Lord has made. And then Abuna says, in the name of the Father, he says the, the blessing, the Trinitarian blessing, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He blesses in the name of the Trinity. And then he says, glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then the deacon says, praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all you peoples. He says, one, one is the Holy Father, one is the Holy Son, one is the Holy Spirit. Blessed be the Lord God forever. Amen. Praise the Lord, all you nations. So he's praising the Trinity. 
And then he's saying, we're here for the salvation of the world. He's reminding us, we are here for the salvation of the world. And then the people respond with the Trinitarian blessing as well. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Um, there's several other scriptures that we can say, like in, in the book of Malachi. We don't have to go to it, but from the rising of a saint, we say this in the St. Cyril liturgy. So just to think that, okay, some people may think, uh, Yanni, our ancient liturgy is St. Saint, Saint Cyril. And we have manuscripts that talk to us about these things being very, very ancient, before St. Cyril even. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall, has been glorified among the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the Gentiles, says the Lord Almighty. That's the Old Testament. So much more us. So we're saying this to make the point that in the Old Testament, we're talking about a people that worshipped in one place, the temple, in one city, like one area, Jerusalem, is where the Jews lived. And then there's one temple, one place, and they're only worshipped by the Jews. And they're saying all of these statements about the salvation of the world. So I'm, I'm putting this as an introduction to think about how God desires the salvation of every soul. And the reading of last Sunday was the reading of our Lord being the true light of the world. So we read in John chapter 8, verse 12. Our Lord says, this is not the last Sunday's reading, but this is the more clear statement. Here. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the light of the world. But our Lord and the church has put for us to read the sixth hour gospel before every liturgy, in which you hear the deacon saying, you are the light of the world. So we take from the light of Christ and we share it with others. But we must take from him first. That means that I need to be standing by myself in my room and praying. I must be standing, if I have my own family, with my family together and praying. Reading the scriptures, opening the scriptures. Having God be involved in our personal life for our salvation so that we can realize the joy and the love of God and that when we come to him with our sins that we committed today, that we re recognize his forgiveness for us, and then I can forgive someone else that wrongs me, or else I will not be able to do this. What, what is light? What is light? What is light? I don't mean scientifically. What is light? What does it do? The absence of darkness. Okay, it is the absence of darkness. What does the light do? Yes. Huh? Helps us see. Okay. So, it helps us see or it allows us to see. If it's truly pitch black, if it's truly the, the, the opposite of darkness, the opposite of light right now, that is completely dark, there's no candles, there's no starlight, there's no nothing, we cannot see our hand in front of us if it's truly pitch black. If you've ever been in a room that doesn't have any windows and you close the door, it's very difficult. So light allows us to see something that makes vision possible. And as Mark was saying, it's the, it's the darkness is not measurable. We don't measure darkness. If they want to measure how much darkness there is, they don't actually measure darkness. They measure the amount of light. Just like for us in our life, evil does not have an existence. St. Athanasius talks about this and against the Gentiles, that evil does not have an actual existence. But evil is the absence of good. 
And the good one is God. That's why all throughout our liturgical prayers we're saying, again, let us ask God, the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask and entreat your goodness. What? O lover of mankind. So we proclaim that God, before we ask Him for anything, we must proclaim He is good and He is lover of mankind. Because if He's very powerful and He's able to fulfill our requests to heal the sick and to repose the departed and to accept our oblations and to be with the travelers, if He's very powerful and capable of doing those things, but He's not good and He doesn't love mankind, He will not do those things. Why would He care? But we proclaim and we say He is good and He is lover of mankind. That's why we trust and we offer Him our requests. And we trust that he will fulfill them according to his goodwill. So when we think about the darkness that's in the world at this time, we look around, we see terrorism still very clear out there. Martyrdoms of people like Mr. Nabil Habashi that you all may have heard of or seen, unfortunately, the martyrdom of. The violence that's around us. The terrorism of ideologies that are around us. May God be with you here in New Jersey. I know that the curriculum for the LGBT agenda has, uh, has been trying to be implemented and forced upon our children. May God have mercy on them and grant you all grace. And there's lots of darkness that's around. Maybe the people that are producing the darkness, like our own selves, don't realize the amount of darkness that's coming. And the amount, not just of darkness, because again, we can't produce darkness, but the amount of light that God is calling us to produce so we can blot out the darkness. In John chapter one, the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not comprehend it, did not comprehend the light. Did not comprehend meaning did not take over the light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. So the world is in need of us to lighten the world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Saint Paul is telling the Philippians, do all things without complaining and disputing. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do all things without complaining or dispute and disputing. What's the first thing we complain about in the day? On average, yeah. Huh? waking up. Just to wake up, we've already, unfortunately, we're in our bed, we haven't even actually moved, and we're already complaining. And St. Paul says, do all things, not just waking up, do all things without complaining and disputing. Why, St. Paul, should I do this? Just to be a good person? To be good for goodness sake, like they teach us? No. We don't want to be good for goodness sake. We want to be good for God's sake. And to be good is to unite with God in His work in the world that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Back in the first century, St. Paul is saying it's a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. When we hold on to the word of God and the commandments of God, despite the waves that the, the society puts on us, then we're shining as lights in the world. And the Lord invites us to become sons of light. In last Sunday's gospel, he said, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And from the time that we are put in the baptismal font, the early church called it the sacrament of illumination. And we still to this day call it the sacrament of illumination, the mystery of illumination. That we are enlightened by God 
and given the grace to truly be called sons of God by adoption, by uniting with our Lord Jesus Christ when we are dying with him in the baptismal font and resurrecting. And we renew that every time we repent and confess. The fathers tell us that the tears of repentance purify us like the waters of baptism. They purify us like the waters of baptism. We're not just invited to live as sons of God, we're called to do so. It is our purpose, it is our responsibility to live so. So when we think about service, service is not something that's um, on Sunday or it's on any particular day of the week, whatever service you have in the church. Service is the life of a Christian. Service is the light of a Christian. In the fraction for the great, fa for the, sorry, for the Holy 50 Days, for the Feast of Resurrection, we say, we who were sitting in darkness for a season, he granted us the light of his resurrection through his holy incarnation. We're sitting in darkness. There were sins in our life. I had these relationships. I was joking around in this manner. I was being unfaithful in my school. I was being unfaithful in my relationship with my parents, my siblings, whatever it may be. I'm judging others. I'm gossiping. I'm being a glutton. I'm, I'm whatever. We're sitting in darkness for a season. Of course, this is speaking about the people of Israel and all of the world, all throughout the Bible. We, as humanity, who are sitting in darkness for a season, he granted us the light of his resurrection to his holy incarnation. From the time of his incarnation until the end, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, he granted us his light to be called sons of light. And then we ask him, based on this, we say, may the illumination of your true knowledge, again, what we were talking about before, the feast of the entry of our Lord into Egypt, that he wants the people of Egypt the non-believers to know him in truth. How are they going to know him in truth unless they see him in us? The people of Egypt now, not us. All the people that are out there that we deal with. You know, sometimes we think of our spiritual life as a checklist. And I think that one part that a lot of us, we don't focus on enough, is we don't realize our high calling to be lights in the world, to actually be a light in the world. That if no one else prays, we're supposed to be praying. If we say we have the Orthodox Christian faith, if no one else is living according to the ways of God, we should be living according to the ways of God. Because if we don't, then who are we expecting to do so? The random person, like we have prayers in our church that tell us, remember, O Lord, those who have no one to remember them. Remember, O Lord, those who have no one to remember them. Because the church says we're responsible for those people that have no one to remember them. Those examples that people sometimes use as excuses as to why we don't participate in the life of the church. What about the random person outside that never knew about the church? Never had anyone preach to him. Okay, we're supposed to be at least praying for them. The people of East Brunswick here, I don't know the population now, but if you live here, pray for them. There's um, a Russian novelist, his name is Dovskievsky, and he wrote many different novels. And one of them, He's speaking about a criminal that committed crimes, and he's speaking to the other people of that community. And he says to those people, the criminal in your community may be less guilty for his crime than you, his Christian neighbor. The criminal in your community may be less guilty for his crime than you, his Christian neighbor. Why? Because he says, you could have been a light to the evildoer, yet you were not. For the man remained beside you in darkness, 
had you been the kind of example you ought to have been and allowed your light to shine on that lost man's path, perhaps he might not have stumbled into his crime. If you had loved your neighbor as yourself and lavished upon him some of the care you generously lavish upon yourself, shared some of the warmth God has privileged you to possess, that criminal might have changed in time. Might have changed in time. Doesn't guarantee. And this is an author that wrote these novels, a lot of them in an atheistic communist Russia at the time. And other people are reading this. So the message that I'm trying to make to you today, this idea of us being a light in the world and for others to know God. Many times when we come to the church, we're looking for a word of comfort, a word of peace, a word of security, a word of encouragement, a word of hope. So if I were to pinpoint what I want to deliver to you by God's grace tonight, it's that if we understand how God's grace works, that if I take from God's grace, God gives me blessings, He gives me peace, He gives me grace. If I'm not willing to share that joy and that grace and that security and that love and that forgiveness and that hope with others, then I'm not going to continue to receive an abundance of it. Or at the very least, I will not be aware of the abundance that God is bestowing upon me. I have to be willing to actually give from what God has given to me and not be worried about losing it all for the sake of the others that God also cares about. It's one of God's ways of mysteriously working. That when He gives the grace, He doesn't give it just for us, for our salvation. Everything that happens in our life is for our salvation and for the salvation of others. Not, that doesn't mean we don't have a private life with God. As they say, when we have a candle lit, if it's truly, truly dark, and we have a candle lit, and we need that candle to be able to see in front of us to get out of the danger or wherever we are, then we have to guard that candle. So there is, a, there is a reasonable need for us to guard the light and to have that personal intimacy with God. That we're reading the scriptures, we receive a message from God, I'm not just going to automatically tell everyone about it. But what's, why, you think sometimes maybe you may think that I'm saying something that's, that's the opposite of the other. Meaning I'm telling you share everything with everybody, but at the same time, you have to have a private life with God. So how do we balance between the two? The reality is this. We're supposed, we're called as Christians to be living a deep and intimate life with God. So if we're truly on a regular basis struggling to be intimate in our life with God and having that private time with Him in prayer and reading the scriptures, then we will naturally have a lot of times in which there are gifts and graces God has given to us and we're even forgetting about them. We can't possibly be sharing all of them with everybody. But we're serving faithfully. We're going around. We're serving our families. We're serving our siblings. We're serving faithfully in our work, in our professional life, in our schooling if you're doing higher studies. But we're giving and giving and giving. But there's, there's bound to be beauties that we're not sharing. Why? Because we're struggling, again, to be regular in our life with God. But if we're only reading the Bible haphazardly, or if we're only coming to church and participating in the liturgical life haphazardly, then we're not going to feel that there's an abundance. We're going to have that war upon us of, do I share this? Am I going to fall into pride for sharing this or not sharing this? I'm sure some of you have met people, and I'm confident that there are people in this church that are like this, that they're full of grace and God uses them, they're sharing love and grace and hope with others. And you wonder to yourself, like, 
is that right for that person to share or do or say? But everyone, God will judge them. That, that aspect of pride is something that God deals with. It's not for me to judge somebody else. But for me, I need to be filling myself so I can give to others and never feel empty. I constantly want to give and never feel empty. Concerning faithfulness in, uh, in, uh, in work, I was visiting a house one time. The man worked as a mechanic. We're talking about light shining in the world and us being the light of the world by God's grace, by God giving us his light and sharing it with others. There was a mechanic and he owned a mechanic shop and a woman came to him wanting to get her car fixed. So this woman was used to using vulgar language, cursing and saying words that are unbefitting. So she's just going to a mechanic shop to get her car fixed. And the man just kindly asked her, please don't uh, curse, don't use this language. And she wasn't trying to be uh, frustrating to the person. Sorry, he wasn't trying to be frustrating to the lady. But she herself kept on cursing. And she wasn't trying to purposely curse to, 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 to ignore this person's request. She ended up cursing one more. Look, he told her again, please don't use this language and, and, and while, while we're talking. You can, I understand everything you're saying. I, I, I understood all these different points that you want to have done in your car. She talked a little bit more. She's cursing. He told her, you see these pictures? That's our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the saints. Please, I don't want cursing here. Told her multiple times. And then he worked on her car, and he had told her in the midst of speaking, look, I'm not going to yani, take payment from you if you keep cursing. He didn't say, I'm not going to do work on your car. He said, I'm not going to take payment from you if you keep cursing. So in the end, he worked on her car, he finished her car. The woman came, whether she did it on purpose or not on purpose, she cursed left and right. He said, I'm not taking payment. She said, she started getting angry, frustrated. What do you mean you're not taking payment? It's different when you don't want to get paid, you don't want to pay, versus, no, you're not being allowed to pay. There's a pride issue now. So she got frustrated that he's not allowing her to pay. And that's how it ended. She didn't pay for her car. And this man, when I visited the house, he was simply telling me this like it was nothing. Like he, he, was, he was talking to me about his life with God. At one point in his life, he was living far from God. And he didn't realize this is something big and, and, and something that's a good example for us in our times. But how much am I willing to give from what is my own right to be able to shine light for others? He's not doing this to send even a Christian message to her. He just genuinely wants to live a pure life like I prayed, I prayed Tazbaha with this man. There were very few people that night in Tazbaha. He was saying every single verse out of tune. Almost every single one without exception. And because I had heard this story from before, I was just sitting there and listening to him, despite the fact that it was difficult to continue to praise and say all the verses. But I said to myself, this man's praise is so acceptable before God. He's just doing it like a child. He's just saying all the verses in whatever language he's, whether in Arabic or English or Coptic, he's saying everything. How many of us are willing to give up for others from what is our own right? Again, not with the sake, we're not just being stepped on, by no means. 
but we're doing it out of a purity for God's commandments, a desire for God's commandments. When we think about a little child, if we think back to our childhood or if we have little brothers and sisters, when mom or dad wakes up the little child, one of the first things they do is they take off the covers. They don't want to wake up, we pull the covers off. What does the child do? What does the child do? They want to be covered. They close their eyes at least. They don't want to see what's going on. Why? Because their eyes are not affixed to the light. They're not used to seeing the light. They're disturbed by the light. Because they've spent a season, a period of time in darkness. And they're okay with remaining in that darkness. Despite the fact that they all want to get up, including our own selves. When we wake up in the morning, if the sun is shining brightly, maybe we'll turn the other way. And maybe we'll be avoiding the, dark, the, the, the light in the beginning. Why? Because we're accustomed to the darkness. So this lady, for example, was accustomed to cursing. She's accustomed to it. She didn't think anything wrong of it. Maybe she wasn't even purposely trying to frustrate them. There are many things that unfortunately we're accustomed to. We're accustomed, accustomed to saying a little lie here and there. Gossip here and there. Judging someone in my mind here and there. Looking at something inappropriate here and there. Going to someone or joking in a certain way. We accustom ourselves, we get desensitized to it. Sayyidina Yusuf a long time ago, actually it was a family convention that Abuna organized. And, uh, and it was Sayyidina Ambi Yusuf giving the talk for the youth and I was one of the youth. Um, and he was talking about drifting. Drifting and how when you're in the middle of the sea, you're swimming, you're enjoying your time. You have to be mindful, you have to constantly look and see where is the umbrella, where is your stuff, or else you're going to drift. So this is the same thing, darkness and then drifting away from the good. Drifting away from being in that good place of grace with God, which I can be reassured, which I can have security, which I can have that peace and that hope that God wants to bestow upon. But after we wake up, then little by little we realize there's a beauty to the world. We may even stand there at the window and look outside at the beauty, if there's a sunset or a sunrise. Despite the fact that just a couple minutes earlier, the sun was burning our eyes and we didn't want to look at it. And God gives us that grace. It's a gradual process. St. Basil the Great talks about this, but he's, he's here talking about theology. He's talking about truth, knowledge of the truth. So he says, God who provides us with every good thing leads us to the truth by gradually accustomed, accustoming our darkened eyes to its great light, the great light of the truth. Gradually he's going to accustom our eyes to it. We're not going to know God as He is, like God desired the Egyptians to know God, all at once. But there are plagues, there are things, little by little, He's having them known. Just like in many of the miracles that happened. There's many examples that can be given, but in the miracles, for example, of the, the wedding of Cana of Galilee, that the water is turned into wine. God, who allowed that the water be turned into wine, by his divinity, as we say in the wedding prayers. Why can't he just make wine appear? He can make wine appear. That's not the point. It's not what God can do. It's not that God can't answer the specific prayer that I've been praying to him for 10 years or whatever it is. It's that God sees a benefit for us behind the repetition. So the servants that are filling up the water jugs constantly going back and forth, they didn't have a hose at the time. They're taking a bucket, they're going back and forth, they're taking a wineskin or whatever they have at that time, 
and they're filling up from the water source, from the lake or from whatever the water is, and constantly going back and forth to the jugs until the six jugs are full, back and forth. And then St. John in his gospel does not withhold from us this reality, this truth, that the, the owner of the, 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 the wedding or the, the ruler of the wedding at that time, he didn't know where the water came from. He didn't know where the wine came from, sorry. But St. John says in parentheses, he says, but the servants knew. The servants knew. So all these words mean something to us. That we ourselves, when we participate in something that we, see, we feel is repetitive or routine or constant, and we feel like it's not producing something, the servants did that as well. The servants could have said to themselves, well, why didn't he just produce the wine? But he wants us to participate. Same thing with the five loaves and the two fish. The disciples went and distributed. They put them in groups of 50. God, you can make five loaves and two. You can make all of it appear in their hands all at once. You're, you're, you're making five loaves and two fish feed 12,000 people. And you don't want them to just come to you at least, stand in a line, do something. But why have them go around four or five times, the disciples, and put 12,000 plus people in groups of 50 or 100? So they can learn. So the disciples would know. So the disciples would know. They would learn. St. Basil ends, he says, He spares our weakness and prescribes a gentle treatment. He knows our eyes are accustomed to dim shadows. So he uses these at first. Our Lord takes us little by little. And if we're willing to work with him, he'll constantly be giving us light. But for us to be a light to others, we have to first disperse the darkness in our own self. Because if we look outside and we say, oh, here are these ideologies, here are these temptations of our generation, like St. Paul said, a crooked and perverse generation, there's always going to be that in every generation. But some of that darkness, unfortunately, is inside of us as well. And God came to blot out it as well. So yes, we're granted the sacrament of illumination. We become children of light in the baptismal font. But again, when we darken ourselves, when we dirty our garments, our baptismal white garment, then we need to be renewed. We need to take from the light, the source of light, repent and confess, and partake of the body and blood so you can be fully reunited with God. He who, we who are sitting in darkness for a season, he granted us the light of his resurrection through his holy incarnation. We want to allow his light to enter inside of us. So when we pray privately in the morning, in the Agbeya prayers, the first hour of the Agbeya, the second litany, we say, we're speaking about the, the light outside, the sunlight. We say, as the morning hour dawns upon us, O Christ our God, the true light, let the enlightened senses, our eyes, our ears, our tongue, our sense of smell, our touch, let the enlightened senses and bright thoughts, sorry, bright thoughts shine within us. And do not let the darkness of passions overcome us. The darkness that's in us, O Lord, don't let the darkness of passions overcome us this day, because we're praying this day. And tomorrow, we'll pray for tomorrow. And we start every day saying, keep us this day without sin. Keep us this day without sin. That we believe that when we start a day, we can continue a day without sin. That's what we're praying. We pray what we believe, we believe what we pray. The passions, the greed, the lust, the pride, the anger, the laziness, cast them out. What are we asking for? Just like the sun shines and we said light allows us to see. It allows us to see. It makes things visible to us. If it makes things visible to us, the darkness, we're going to stumble if we're walking in darkness. 
That's why the Gospel last Sunday, the Lord tells us, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. We don't know what we're going to walk into. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So our Lord wants to enlighten inside of us. Just like I can stumble over something in the dark, there's a thought that I'm starting my day with. I'm going to have a meeting with so-and-so. Or I want to confront someone that I love about this topic. And I have some darkness in it. I have some pride mixed in. I have some laziness in my preparation for whatever I'm doing. And God wants to cast it out. So I'm asking him from the beginning of the day, please God, come into me. And just like the, your sun that you created shines upon the world, so your light, O Lord, by the work of your Holy Spirit inside of me, from within me as a child of God, as one that has been illumined by the sacrament of baptism and chrismation, that I also would have this darkness dispersed. So I can see clearly with my eyes and be able to serve and love others. We say in the absolution of the first hour as well, God who causes light to burst forth and who lets his sun to shine upon the righteous and the wicked. The sun is shining upon the righteous and the wicked, whether we like it or not. It's a grace that's given to us. Grace is a free gift from God. What do we want from the God who shines upon the righteous and the wicked, allows the light to shine, who created the light which illuminates the whole world? Enlighten our minds, our hearts, and our understanding. O Master of all, and grant us to please you this present day. Guard us from every bad thing, from every sin, and from every adversative power. So like the light shines upon all people, the light shines inside of us so that we may have that light and bear it and give it to others. When we think, again, about us sharing with others, we must receive first. I must be willing to stand before God and just like now we see electric cars and stuff having more charging stations around, we want to increase the amount of charging stations that we have all throughout the day. We want to increase the amount of time. Okay, I have a time in the morning. I have a time maybe before my lunch break, maybe when I first get to work, maybe before I enter into my home, maybe on my way home I stop at a cemetery, maybe on my way home I stop at church. I, I spend time with God. I have some sort of charging station in which I'm spending time with God. And yes, I said a cemetery. Because that's what I remember being taught. It's not a monastic thing. It's just a reality. That it's very sober for us to go to a cemetery and to meditate there. Um, because we won't be disturbed there. And there's a reality of life that we must face in ourselves when we go to a cemetery. I remember there were some people. Yanni, there's a spiritual father that I had, and he told me he can't go anywhere, because the people always find him, so he would go to a cemetery for a retreat. And that's what the monastery essentially is. If you go on a retreat there, there's a bunch of people that have had prayers of the departed to pray on them. So we need to recharge ourselves so we can shine with the light of Christ. And just remember the principle that God has taught us when we are Given much, much is expected of us. When we trade with that much, when we're willing to give up that, and we're not just looking selfishly for our own security and our own peace and our own hope, then God will bestow upon us as we serve others. We will, meet Christ, we, will meet, we will meet Christ in all those whom God has appointed for us to interact with throughout the day. 
May God grant us this grace all throughout our life and especially at this time of his resurrection. And glory be to him forever. Amen.